announcement as we get started. I mentioned that book, What's Your Worldview, a handful of weeks back, and I forgot that we actually have it now. So in the Resource Center, it's the first bookshelf in the top right corner of it. I think there's only a couple copies out on display, but we have plenty. So if you're interested in that book, What's Your Worldview by uh, James Anderson, it's very short, it's helpful. If you want to give it away to somebody that you don't think is a believer, it'd be helpful for them to think through some of the consequences of their worldviews. So that's there. If they run out, let me know. We have more to, to put on display, or I can even bring them in here if we think that's useful. Um, but today we're going to be talking about moralistic therapeutic deism. And if you have no idea what that is, well, then you'll hopefully learn something today. Um, so we'll head through that. First, I want to pray, and then we'll get into it, okay? Gracious God, we thank you for uh, the blessing it is to meet together within your church today to help build up the body and to learn what it means to be uh, a functioning member of a functioning body. Pray that what we review today can um, remind us of the truth of your word. I pray that uh, we would be in despair for those deceived by these wrong beliefs about you and be grateful for how you've revealed yourself to us. Pray that it be a blessing to us and be glorifying to you in Jesus' name. Amen. A uh, quick recap before we get to this, to, to get where we are. I'm not going to go through the, the whole spiel, and if you haven't been at the previous classes and want to hear them, they are available on our church website or on any good podcasting app, or even a not very good podcasting app, you can probably find it there. Just search for NCBC, Adult Discipleship Electives, and you'll, you'll find them. But our first few weeks, we're setting the foundations of what a Christian worldview is and what it's like to think in terms of a worldview, kind of give us our baseline for then how we would look at and analyze non-believing worldviews. We had two weeks of explicitly secular worldviews when we looked at secularism and postmodernism. Now this week we're going to start to trans in, transition into the more explicitly religious worldviews by first hitting some uh, vaguely religious worldviews, starting with moralistic therapeutic deism, which from time to time I might just say MTD because the shape of those words is difficult for my mouth, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. And then next week, we'll look at religious pluralism. And then after that, some uh, explicit formal world religions we'll, we'll look through. If you've not heard of moralistic therapeutic deism, it's another very, very common worldview or outlook that people have without probably knowing the label. No one's going to say, hi, my name is Jim, and I'm a moralistic therapeutic deist. But the things we'll talk about are going to sound very familiar. You've probably heard things like this in bits and pieces and probably never put a name on it. And it's, it's even possible you have heard this term before because Kevin has said it a few times from the pulpit and you may have thought, did he just make that up? Because it, it sounds a bit made up. But it is a thing uh, and all words are made up. So you would have been kind of right anyway. But this string of words really was made up really not that long ago. Um, it was based on the work of a university sociologist. Uh, at the time, there was this very common view of the late teen, early 20-year-old uh, student. We basically expected kids like that to be non-religious, kind of unconventional, rebelling against the man a little bit, cynical, skeptical of all things, and so on. That was the very common picture that we had of the, the late teen. Back in the early 2000s, this guy, a sociologist from University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill at the time, now he's at Notre Dame, uh, his name is Christian Smith. He wanted to find out if that stereotype was true. So he had this giant four-year research project, and it was the most extensive, detailed, rigorous study of the religious beliefs and opinions of this age group that had ever been done. So they, they surveyed about 3,000 
uh, late teens to get their beliefs and their attitudes, and it was American students, and they tried to get this representative sample of what um, that population would be like. They also conducted over 250 very in-depth face-to-face interviews, again with a representative sample of students. So they didn't just hit like one fraternity house and do that. It was to try to get the, the worldview of a lot of different kids. And the results were published in a book in 2005 called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. Has anybody read that by chance or heard of it? No? I haven't read it either. Um, I've mostly read uh, analyses of it and watched videos and heard talks about it, but that's the official work that they put out. The conclusions that Smith drew from this research project were actually very interesting. And one of the main conclusions was that these late, American, these late teens in America weren't actually that rebellious. When it came to religion anyway, they were fairly conventional, at least in the parameters of their religious view. They tended to still follow to some extent the religious beliefs and traditions of their parents and of their community without really too much resistance um, or controversy. But what he found, especially through the in-depth interviews, was that those teenagers that did identify with a particular set of religious beliefs, whether it be Christianity, Judaism, Mormonism, or whatever, and almost all of them did identify with some uh, traditional religion, but they were overwhelmingly ignorant of the details of that religion that they professed to follow. They generally couldn't give a accurate or even very coherent uh, articulation of what the teachings of that uh, professed religion were. They couldn't answer questions about what the beliefs were, questions about God, about salvation, about prayer. Nothing that they gave in terms of an answer reflected any kind of Orthodox Christianity or Orthodox Judaism or Islam or anything, and more reflected a very degenerate, deluded form of the religion, like the Walmart brand of the, of the religion. And that's what Smith dubbed moralistic therapeutic deism. So that's where that came from. He went on to suggest, actually, in uh, a later work, that what he was defining here may, in fact, be the dominant religion among all Americans in general, not just uh, teenagers, but adults as well. And he concluded that because if you were to think, let's ask the question, why do these students hold this perspective? Where did they get it from? Well, probably from mom and dad and from the community. They didn't all just come up with it. It was uh, learned behavior and learned beliefs. So that's where the term comes from. Again, moralistic, therapeutic, deism, it's a mouthful. This book is less than 20 years old, so this hasn't had a label on it for very long, but it's super pervasive in our culture. It's more pervasive than we'd like to admit in American churches. And uh, frankly, some of us probably fall into this kind of thinking if we're not careful as well. So we're gonna take a look at what those beliefs are. We'll look at it in terms of worldview thinking. We'll ask some critical questions of it to see where it goes wrong, and then think about how we could engage with somebody who shares this kind of outlook. So we'll start off by trying to boil this down like we have been for the other worldviews to get like one basic belief, what's the core idea of the worldview. And here's how I would at least categorize the basic idea of MTD. And I'm playing a little bit off of the, the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, if you're familiar with that, that asks, what is the chief end of man? With the answer being, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, this perspective is basically the exact opposite of that. This would be that God's chief end is to help us feel good. So God's chief end is to help us feel good. So right away you can see that this is a very upside down picture versus biblical Christianity. We have a theocentric worldview, uh, a worldview that's centered on God. 
whereas moralistic therapeutic deism would have, and I had to look this word up, an anthropocentric worldview. That's the opposite of a theocentric worldview. Anthropocentric means centered on people, centered on man. It's a very man-centered worldview. So the highest goal in this outlook would be for us to feel good, to feel good about ourselves. And that makes God's highest goal, at least the only one that matters, God's highest goal is to help us achieve our highest goal of feeling good. And Pastor Scott kind of talked about this in his sermon. But in this view, God is very much like this doting grandfather in the sky, or maybe another image you could get is that he's like the genie from Aladdin. He's just there to give us what we need in our time of need. God's a very uh, anthropomorphic, another big word, uh, anthropomorphic God. He's kind of like the genie is. He is a mysterious spiritual being, that's for sure. He has great powers uh, greater than ours, but he still has very human characteristics and sensibilities. God exists like the genie, primarily to serve our needs, to use his magical powers whenever we need him to. And you can call on God anytime you need to. You can rub the lamp and he'll come, but the rest of the time he's kind of out of sight and out of mind. Uh, he certainly isn't a God to be feared. He's not a God that is wrathful uh, towards human beings or towards sin. He's basically a good-natured, laid-back dude uh, that happens to be super powerful. He's a very chill God that wants to help us out and wants us to be happy. And that's really the God of this moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, to round out the basics of the view, I'll refer to what Christian Smith in his book referred to as the five points of moralistic therapeutic deism, kind of like the five points of Calvinism or Arminianism. But this is his own summary of what the main tenets of MTD would be, which he gathered from his research project and articulated in that book and several others. But point one would be that a God exists who created the world, created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most other religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. So those are the five points of MTD as Smith discovered in his research project and the views of those 3,000 teenagers. We'll expand on these a bit as we take, as we take MTD through our takes model uh, to see what a worldview is made up of. But before we do that, one more thing, let's talk about the label itself, because it's a mouthful, moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, this was again coined by Smith in his book to reflect the religious attitudes of those teens. But I want to make sure we know what these words mean in terms of that point of view. Um, so first, moralistic. The view is moralistic in the sense that its view of success, of a good life, is primarily focused on morality, on being a moral person. They would say that we should all try really hard to be good moral people. And what does that mean? being a good person basically means to be nice. We should be nice to other people. So that's the moralistic aspect of it. Therapeutic, it's therapeutic in that it suggests that religion, and not any particular religion like Christianity in specific or anything, but religion primarily plays a therapeutic role in people's lives. Uh, what religion serves to do is to make us better, nicer, and happier people. 
I mean, if you, if you have a, let's say you have an injury, you go to a physical therapist, they make you better. Uh, you got anxiety, you're worried about stuff, you go to a therapist, they make you better. That's kind of the thing in our culture. You have a problem, you go get therapy for it. And religion is the ultimate therapy, and God is the ultimate therapist in this point of view. So that's the therapeutic aspect of it. And then deism, where it's deistic, how is it deistic? Well, it's deistic and then it does affirm the existence of a god of some kind um he's not seen as like continually or intimately involved in people's lives he's not the center of the view he's peripheral but he is there god's out there for sure but he keeps a pretty safe distance he doesn't get involved or interfere unless we ask him to which he can do and we can speak to him through prayer but god typically doesn't speak back in this point of view uh, it's a very one-way relationship. We do most of the talking. They don't hear back from God, and not that, not that we audibly hear back from God either, but they don't really receive any real word from God. They, don't, they might respect the Bible, think of it as a handy uh, ethics book, but they wouldn't read it and understand it in a way that it's a direct authoritative word directly from God. It's not God-breathed in the 2 Timothy 3.16 sense for them. So for them, it's a very one-way street in terms of communication. So that's why it's deistic, as there is a God there, but he's basically uh, silent. Okay, now we're ready to take this through our T-A-K-E-S model, the, the five aspects of a worldview that we came up with, well, we didn't come up with, that we're borrowing from James Anderson, the same guy who wrote the book that I mentioned earlier. But this way we can walk through this to see how it would respond to these uh, different categories. So we'll start, like always, with theology. And I've already covered this a little bit in the last things we've talked about, so we'll get through it pretty quickly, but to, to get some bullets on there. This does, again, say that there is a God, a God who created the world and watches over the world, but again, from a distance. Uh, in fact, if we were going to have a theme song for this point of view, it would probably be From a Distance by Bette Midler. Anybody know that song? Would you like me to sing some of it? Uh, I won't do that because it would sound terrible, but it really is a terrible song anyway, uh, for a lot of reasons. If, if you were to, I actually looked at the lyrics, because this got in my head and I couldn't get it out. Um, but the, the worldview reflected by those lyrics and from a distance really reflects this moralistic, therapeutic deism. There is a, a God out there, but he's there primarily for our benefit. He's just up there really hoping things go our way and helping out when he can. So that's kind of the relevance of God in this point of view. Uh, as Christian Smith put it in his book, he said that it seemed in, in the feedback from these students that God was basically the combination of a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. He really just exists to meet our needs whenever we need him to, and the rest of the time he keeps to himself. So what that means is instead of a God who is continually upholding the universe, this is a God who is only sporadically involved in the world. He can intervene uh, in answer to prayers, but he's not going to do anything crazy, right? Um, but even so, with that, that's why we don't have a full-blown deism. The true old-school deists from, you know, previous centuries, they would say God doesn't get involved at all. That's like deism proper. It's basically that God wound up the clock. He created stuff and then just lets it run out. This view does say that God can answer prayers, um, but things generally run along just fine uh, without God's involvement. Um, so really, this view says that God's real when I need him to be real. If I've got a problem and I would really like a God to help me out, that's when God is real. So that's kind of the heart 
of the view of God in this point of view. <clears throat> to anthropology, so what does this worldview say about us, since we're the center of the whole deal? What does it say about mankind? Well, they do affirm, typically, and again, this is, there's not a church of moralistic therapeutic deism. It's people all over churches and synagogues and wherever that hold this outlook. But they would generally say that we are created by God uh, somehow somehow or another. The details of human origins typically aren't really important to someone who holds this kind of outlook. It's all uh, pretty vague. We don't need to be super specific about it. It could have been through special creation. It could have been through uh, evolutionary processes or somewhere in between. It doesn't really matter, typically. But they will typically affirm that we are spiritual beings, that we're not purely physical beings, as like the naturalist would hold, that we're just the stuff that we're made of. There is a spiritual aspect to humanity. And that's why for them it's important to exercise that spiritual side and to be um, religious. Uh, in terms of our place in the universe, uh, the universe basically exists for us. Um, while we're not like physically the center of the universe, in terms of spiritually and why the universe is here, this view would say it's here to serve us. Uh, as I said earlier, this is a very anthropocentric worldview, and I'm going to say that word a lot because I like it, uh, anthropocentric. Um, but that's the point of view. The universe is here for us. In terms of our purpose, what are we here for? If we want to ask what human being, what's the point of our lives? Uh, we talked last couple of times in naturalism and postmodernism, if they were being consistent, they would have to say there is no objective purpose for life. Well, this typically does have a purpose, and the purpose is to feel good. We basically want to feel good about ourselves, and religion is a very, very important way of achieving that goal. Uh, next to drop another theological term on you, but uh, moralistic therapeutic deism has a very Pelagian view of human nature. And if you're not familiar with the term Pelagian, no worries. I'll give you a brief history lesson. Um, Pelagianism is named after a guy named Pelagius. He was a monk in the 4th century AD, and he denied core Christian doctrines of human fallenness and original sin. So the idea that human beings are born in sin, fallen sin in Adam, he didn't buy that. Uh, he argued that human beings were morally neutral at birth. We were basically a, a blank slate, neither good nor bad, neither inclined one way or the other. That we were basically born like Adam was, able to do good or bad, and that we as humans get to freely choose between good or evil. We were entirely free to take the good path or the bad path, either following the bad example of Adam or the good example of Jesus. We make that choice fully of our own accord, no divine intervention in any way. And he argued that basically we would then earn eternal life by being good, by being morally good, following God's commands close enough. You, not, you don't necessarily need to know who Jesus Christ is or anything, but if you are a good enough person, the reward is heaven. He would say that God's grace is available if you needed it, but it's not necessary for salvation. So divine grace was an optional extra according to Pelagius's teaching. This was uh, very strongly fought against by St. Augustine. You might be familiar with St. Augustine back in the day, the great Christian theologian. And eventually, Pelagianism lost officially. Uh, in 418, Pelagianism was identified and denounced as a heresy, and Pelagius himself as a heretic, again in 418 AD. And then Pelagius died that same year, but his theology didn't die. It was struck down officially, but it did not die, and it's very prevalent, especially in this MTD 
point of view and his perspective of human nature. And frankly, even among a lot of professing Christians, Pelagianism, or what you might hear called semi-Pelagianism, is very widespread. I've heard of countless polls that ask professing, professing Christians what they believe about human nature, about what salvation is, whether we're born basically good or basically bad, why people go to heaven, and they pretty much reflect the views of Pelagius. Uh, it's, it's sad to see. It's not at all the Christian, the orthodox view of um, mankind or of salvation. So that's a big problem, uh, and we'll see um, the consequences of that. But that rounds out the view of anthropology. And I know we're flying, but I promise you to not go over time today. That's one of my goals. Now let's move on to knowledge. What would they say about uh, knowledge and how we come to know things and why we believe things? Generally, people who hold this outlook would say that we inherit our beliefs, basically our beliefs about God and the world, from our parents and from the culture. At least in practice, that's what happens. We're born into a particular religious tradition, whether that be Judaism, Sikhism, Mormonism, whatever. We're born into that tradition, and then we tend to stay there. We're likely to stay there. And that's perfectly okay in this view. There's no need to convert from one to the other. And then we also have life experiences that will guide us through life, and they'll help round out our beliefs, our personal experiences and feelings. We'll fill that out, how we understand and experience the world. And those may change our beliefs a little bit. They may knock us from one category to the other. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's fine either way. There's no single set of right beliefs in a, in a religion, but that's where they come from. We get them from our parents, our community, and our life experiences. In terms of Truth, does truth matter in this perspective? If you remember postmodernism last time, uh, incoherently said that there was no truth. Um, naturalism would say somewhat of the same thing. This point of view tends to have a very pragmatic view of truth, which basically means if it works, it is true. Truth is whatever works best, and what works for me may not work for you, but that's, uh, again, fine. Um, if believing a certain set of religious beliefs makes you happy, makes you a fulfilled person, makes you a better, more moral person, helps you get along with other people, then it's true enough. It's a true enough set of beliefs. It's, it's true in the only way that really matters in this point of view. Something being true, true, like capital T true, is less uh, important than something being true enough to work. In terms of knowledge of God, uh, would this view say, like, can we know God? And if so, how do we know God? I'm going to use two more big words here that uh, Christian Smith used to sum it up, which was pluralistic mysticism or mystical pluralism, either way. But the two words that we're combining are pluralism and mysticism. Uh, what that means is that our knowledge of God isn't really based on logic or evidence or reasoning using our intellect in any way. God is seen as being beyond reason, beyond logic, beyond any kind of human Understanding, that's kind of the mystic part of it. He's this mystical being we can't really know about. So reasoning isn't going to get us what we need in terms of knowing God. There's also typically no real knowledge of God based on a literal verbal revelation like in the Bible. Uh, the traditional understanding of the Bible being God-breathed, God revealing himself to us. Again, this, people in this perspective might read the Bible. They might study it to a certain extent, but mostly as a these are nice stories. These are good ethical, moral lessons we can learn from here. Not the literal authoritative word of God. So we don't learn about God that way. They would also typically hold that different understandings of God are all equally valid, whether it's the religious or the Christian understanding of God or the Muslim understanding of God or Mormon, whatever. They're all equally valid 
and work more or less to serve the same purpose. Next time we meet, we're going to talk about religious pluralism, but MTD certainly falls into a pluralistic, in terms of religion, uh, point of view, but we'll save that for now. But basically what that means is that no one's really sure, no one really knows what God is actually like. So any conception of him is good enough if it works to achieve those other purposes, to making us a better, more fulfilled person. But we'll save religious pluralism for next time. Let's go to E for ethics. So what would this worldview say about right or wrong? They're very focused on being a good person and living the good life. Let's see what that means. What value should we actually hold? Typically, someone that holds this kind of perspective would affirm that there are some universal moral principles. It's not advocating like a full-on relativism like uh, postmodernism claims to do anyway. But the moral principles that are absolute are very simple and few in number. Um, what it means to do the, the right thing is generally very broad and very basic and straightforward uh, in this point of view. And really, if you were going to boil it down, it would be to just be nice, right? Be nice to other people. It's really the, the poor man's version of Jesus' teaching, the golden rule to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But that's their kind of foundational thing is we should be nice to each other. They would, though, say that there are some oral moral principles. This is Christian Smith was able to extract these from all of that research that he did and find some more kind of very high-level basic moral principles that nearly everyone seemed to share. That would be things like we should treat others with respect and fairness. We should work hard in life to try to be successful in what you do. You should look out for your friends and your family. You should also look out for yourself, particularly with uh, sex. They would say you don't want to get into trouble with sex. So avoiding sexual immorality was a fairly consistent response from these students uh, that basically espouse this worldview. But the details of what that actually means were super vague and pretty sketchy. So they would generally say the idea would be uh, you shouldn't use sex in a way that leads to bad consequences or makes people unhappy. You might hear things like you shouldn't have sex until you're ready, right? Not until you find the right person. Um, Nowhere near the more narrow view that like, Christianity would say, that's, that it's for one man and one woman in one marriage. But uh, be very, very broad that way. And then another principle, everybody's favorite, is that you shouldn't be intolerant or judgmental towards others. It's kind of an each to his own, live and let live kind of perspective. If other people want to do other things that you don't do, they want to follow another religious perspective, all of it is okay as long as these other principles aren't contradicted in any way. As long as they're meeting this criteria that we've made up, let them do what they uh, want to do. It's a very, um, I mean, it's moralistic. You can say they do follow morals, but it's also very, uh, I'm going to say it again, anthropocentric in terms of morals here. There's really no relation to our morality in terms of a requirement from God here. It's more all about the horizontal human being to human being relationships. There's nothing here about why these are good. Why is this the right thing to do? There's no, uh, nothing here about where they come from and who we're accountable to to follow these. It's just a very let's all get along type of uh, worldview. Anthropocentric. Okay, finally on to salvation. Uh, standard disclaimer, this basically means what would this kind of outlook have to say is the biggest problem for human beings and what are the solutions for it? And they would probably say that the biggest problem is human misery. 
uh, and even misery might be a strong word, it's, word, it's really that we're unhappy and uh, dissatisfied uh, with our lives. The idea basically is that we don't have the things that we want to have or we aren't the way that we want to be. We wish we had them, but we don't. We wish we had someone else's life, but we don't. We, we basically don't feel good. We don't feel good about ourselves or we don't feel good about others. We aren't feeling fulfilled. We don't have the relationships that we want. People aren't nice to us and so forth. Anything that makes us unhappy, that's really the biggest problem uh, in the world, that we're unhappy. The solution to that is essentially divine therapy, right? That's the therapeutic deism part of it. The solution is we need to call out to that cosmic therapist to help us out. And they typically view that in two forms. Uh, we have a now form of what we do about our unhappiness, and then we have a future form of what is done with it. In the present, we do have prayer. They do typically talk about praying, and they have a, a general expectation that God will give us what we ask for if we are good enough and we deserve it. If you've got a problem, call God. God will sort it out. If he doesn't, it's because you haven't been good enough. That's the present. And then in the future, they have a hope of heaven, that God will eventually sort all of this out in heaven. All of the unhappiness will go away. All of the dissatisfaction will go away. We will, we will be fulfilled in heaven, again, if we're good enough, if we've been good enough to get in. So they are, they are religious solutions to these problems. Uh, it's a religious set of problems and it's a religious solution, but no particular specific religion is necessary here. We don't need uh, a particular original religion. We just need a religion. And they tend to suggest that different religions will work the same. It'll work for different people. Um, this is the pluralistic aspect that we'll talk more about next time, but for some people, Christianity does the job, and that doesn't have to be any particular brand of Christianity. It could be Presbyterianism, could be the Methodist denomination, could be the denomination known as non-denominational Christianity, <laughs> like ourselves. Um, all of those would be fine, but so would Islam, so would Mormonism, so would Hinduism, whatever. doesn't necessarily need to be a particular one. If you are good enough and God responds to you, or seems to, then it works. In terms of heaven, uh, in terms of how people get there, the basic definition, which we saw in the five points, is that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And I suspect that if you were going to do a poll of just all Americans about, you know, what do you believe about heaven and hell and how people go there, that would probably be the answer that you hear from just about everyone. And the category of people that fit into bad are probably like Hitler and maybe two other guys that, that fit the bad category. Uh, unfortunately, I've even heard programs, or I've heard polls on programs like the White Horse Inn, if you're familiar with that, where they will poll professing Christians, like outside of a Christian event, and they ask that person, you know, why do you believe that you will go to heaven? And the answer typically is, because I'm a good person, right? It's very, very, very common, uh, and we need to protect ourselves from it and try to protect other people from it as well. Okay. Oh, we're cruising. Um, we've kind of laid it out as a, as a framework here in terms of what it looks like as a basic idea. And again, this isn't an official religion that you can find in a, in a book. This is people who might be kind of tangentially related to other religions that hold this point of view, but it's still worth evaluating uh, on its own terms as well as looking at uh, how it is in terms of livability. So I want to go through a couple of our uh, evaluation tools that we've talked about before. We could probably use just about any of these and show kind of the weakness of this as a, as a worldview. 
in terms of like the head tools it's being consistent having explanatory power um, it doesn't really stand up uh, at all but today I don't want to use so many of those I want to just look at a couple of the practical uh, worldview critiques to see how this would answer things like does it align with experience does it give hope and those kinds of things um, it's a it's a pretty poorly thought out worldview most people that hold it uh, don't realize they hold it they think that they are holding something probably very uh, probably a very wise interpretation of the world around us but let's go through some of those we will use these a little bit next time for religious pluralism but let's just stick with the heart tools today and I think that's what is going to get us out of here on time so let's first look at experience how does this worldview fit with our experience and the experience of others in the world on a uh, on a superficial level the idea of moralistic therapeutic deism fits really well for people like us American churchgoers um, and I'm, I'm proud to be an American I don't have any problem with Americans or Americans Christians I'm happy with the religious freedoms that we have here and the blessings that we've experienced here but those blessings have tinted our view of the world and what um, religion is and because of those blessings that we experience here it's very easy to fall into this trap of moralistic therapeutic deism and when you look at our culture as a whole American culture this perspective fits really well it's almost tailor-made for Americans who generally speaking we live pretty comfortable and affluent lives we're not suffering a lot of the hardships that people are in other places around the world we also have a very consumerist culture uh, if you have a need for something someone has probably made a product that will help solve that for you you can go get your problem solved fairly easily we're a very consumer centric culture and moralistic therapeutic deism is a very consumer centric religious perspective so we become religious consumers in this way of thinking but if we want to expand our thinking a little bit let's say could could this outlook survive outside of America would it fit the experience of non-Americans and in particular non-American Christians in other parts of the world like would this would this worldview have any legitimacy in like China for example I don't think that Chinese Christians would so easily fall into this trap like we do and I think the majority of the planet probably wouldn't fall into this trap as easily as we would if we were to think of just using China for example where Christians are there or people of any faith there they're very much the minority in the culture they're under the thumb of a near totalitarian government that's not overly concerned with the happiness of their people well what's what's their experience with religion and with God the Christians in China they're very sincere in their faith they're very religious people they're very spiritually minded they're very devoted to Jesus they love and trust in Jesus they strive to follow him they're just as spiritual if not more so than we are but their life experience is very different than ours they're often experiencing poverty persecution arrest they're not living a very comfortable and affluent lifestyle like we are but yet despite all that despite the poverty and persecution they often testify to a great joy a great supernatural spiritual joy that clearly isn't coming from their, their material comfort but rather is one that transcends the the persecution that they're experiencing they have a, a supernatural joy in spite of suffering well how would that fit in with moralistic therapeutic deism how would the view of God and what it means to be spiritual and be in the right relationship with God work uh, for them it wouldn't make any sense for them really because 
the whole point of moralistic therapeutic deism is when I have a problem, I go to God and he solves it, and I feel better, and I get happy. That's God's purpose is to make me happy. So the problem is that this point of view has a very superficial view of God and of suffering. Uh, as we've seen, it's very shallow. It's, what's that word? Anthropocentric <laughs> in its point of view. Um, but the goal is basically to not suffer. The goal is to be happy. We shouldn't have to suffer if we have this relationship with God. We shouldn't have to experience hardship. And if I am, it's because I'm not being good enough. And I think that it, what it does is it turns this point of view really into just a halfway house between full-blown atheism, where suffering has no purpose uh, at all, it's just a, a random consequence, and over on the other side, a robust biblical understanding of God and suffering, where suffering can serve a higher purpose. This is just a place stuck in the middle, and I think it's very unstable. I think anybody that has this point of view would be very shaken by any personal tragedy in life or any kind of suffering, or if they just open their eyes to people in other parts of the world, they would see that this worldview doesn't really hold any water. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. If you can close your eyes to all those things and you live a pretty happy life, you might be able to pull it off. But if anything shakes that or if you look around, uh, it's going to fall apart. The experiences of Christians around the world don't fit in line with this uh, at all. I, don't, I think it'd be very unsatisfying. I don't think you'll be able to hold on to it. I don't think this point of view could survive, which is a good thing. I don't want this point of view to survive. But the options would be likely that you're going to move towards atheism. You'll become so disillusioned because you were expecting God to solve your problem for you, and he didn't. You prayed about it, and he didn't answer. You might start to wonder, I feel like I've been pretty good. Why didn't I get what I asked for? Maybe God doesn't exist at all, and you can fall on, on that side. Um, maybe suffering really is purposeless, and there's no meaning to human life. All this religious stuff is a sham. That's the one way. Or, better case, this really degenerate worldview could be regenerated, and you could start to, to find a biblical theism um, in the Christian worldview that it's been basically trying to live off of and siphon off of and, and uh, be a parasite of before. Maybe, Lord willing, a person in this point of view could broaden their view of God, they could heighten their view of God and of suffering, and come to understand that, you know, life isn't all about avoiding and escaping suffering but rather it's about glorifying God and enjoying him forever, relying on God and trusting him in the midst of suffering, and that suffering can actually have a higher purpose, not something to be escaped, but something to, to use to grow, and it could be the means that God uses to draw you to himself. We can deepen our relationship with God through suffering and be prepared eventually for an eternity with him through that. So anybody stuck in this waste of a point of view we would certainly hope that they fall into this latter category, and that would be the direction that we would want to point them if we talk to somebody in, in this kind of point of view. We would want to tell them and direct them to the true and living God that they're really missing out on with this impotent butler in the sky that they are believing in. Questions or thoughts on, on this one? I'm almost going too fast now, so I've got to slow down a little bit. Yeah, Steve? Um. I wonder if, I mean, I think somebody that holds this kind of a worldview on the very surface, you could have a conversation with them and walk away thinking they might be a Christian. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's probably part of the danger. Um, I mean, I could, I could hear somebody, and I'm thinking of, of, I guess, politicians now. But if you recall back, you know, if you're old enough to remember President Reagan, 
Uh, I'm President not. Reagan so. used to used to uh, end most of his major uh, addresses with "God bless America," hmm. and I think he I think he sincerely was wanting that. But you'll notice that every politician, you know, from Bill Clinton to Biden to everybody else, they quickly pick that up because that's a cliche thing. It's become cliche, you yeah. know, to say that. And now I think another thing that's that's uh, you know, popped up that probably fits in with this is that whole, when something bad happens to somebody, what do you read in their tweets? Our thoughts and our prayers are with them. Mm -hmm. Really? You really praying for them? You really, you know? Right. Um, and so I think the, like you said, the shallowness of it, you know, it wouldn't take much to, too many questions to ask somebody like this to find out that, well, there's nothing underneath it. It's just all kind of feel-good fluff. Mm -hmm. And as long as, like you say, everything's going well, it fits real good, quote, with the American dream. Yeah. Um, but then the people that hold this kind of a view, like you say, when they become disillusioned because it doesn't work out, man, I could see somebody having a really hard time pulling out of that. Yep. Yeah, I don't, I don't think this will do you much good when, um, when your spouse gets sick or when anything bad happens and they're all happy to say like you said god bless america when things are going well yeah. i don't know that anyone would say god judge america <laughs> right um but yeah very very spot on and you're probably thinking of like 20 to 100 people that you know that you're like i wonder if i haven't i know they they say religious-y things yeah. i don't think they go to church i don't know what the, they don't we don't it's weird when i pray around them all those kinds of things it's very possible that they have this because the glory of God is manifest in the world. So they might have this picture of God probably exists, but no true understanding of who he is, uh, what his expectations are, and why his expectations are those things, and how we are made right with him, not by doing those things, but by trusting the God who did. So yeah, very good points. Now that takes us pretty well into the, uh, the next one. We'll do one more tool, and we'll talk about the tool of um, hope. So this is asking, does this worldview actually give any real hope to a person that holds to it, either hope now or hope in the future. And I want to specifically talk about uh, heaven. So this, they tend to agree that there's a heaven of some kind and good people go there. But I would want to ask the person, how can you know that you personally will end up there? You know, there is one. Good people go there, bad people don't. How do you know you're one of the, the good ones? How do you have any hope that you will be in heaven? And I don't think that this point of view can offer any genuine hope for one's eternal destiny. So what I want to do is compare it to the Christian worldview. But first, in this worldview, they do say uh, only good people go to heaven. So the obvious follow-up question would be for a person, have you been good enough? Have you been good enough either so far or will you be good enough by the end of your life to get into heaven? How would, how would I know if it were me? And the short answer would have to be, if thought about, I guess I don't know right? Um, you can't really know for certain in this point of view because you can't appeal to any real standard. They don't have any real authoritative uh, direct word from God as to how good you need to be or exactly what conditions need to be met to be good enough. Typically, the people are optimistic. Like if you were to ask them uh, if they hold this point of view, you'd ask them if they're going to go to heaven, they're likely going to say, well, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll go to heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. Uh, I'll get in. They have this optimism about it, but it's a very empty optimism. Um, they may say quickly that they're going to heaven, but if you just ask them, like, oh, how did you come to that conclusion? 
they would have no resources to really fall back on. They would have really no basis for the kind of optimism uh, that they have. So it's an optimism without any real foundation, which is really just um, wishful thinking. But if we compare that to the Christian worldview, on the Christian worldview, it's a really easy answer, and that's that no one is good enough to go to heaven, right? At least not based on their own life and their own merits. So I know that I'm not good enough to get into heaven. So if you're going to say to me, hey, Chris, how do you know that you're good enough to get into heaven? I would say, oh, I'm not. Be a, be a pretty short answer. But I still have hope because Jesus Christ is good enough, right? I have a heavenly hope, not on the basis of how good I am, but on how good Christ is. I put my trust in him, a powerful, perfect savior and substitute. His merits, according to the standard, are good enough for my admittance into heaven. And this is precisely what God has revealed to us in scripture. He says that if I trust in Jesus, if I'm united to Christ by faith, then God is gonna count that perfect life on my account. His perfect moral um, upright, uprightness looks as if it were mine. We then seek to be moral. We also seek to be good people according to God's standard as the objective standard of morality as found in his word, but that's out of obedience to the one who saved us and a desire to become more like our savior, not as a way of gaining admittance into heaven. In our view, eternal life is offered to anyone who will trust by faith in the perfect life, atoning death and triumphant resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, regardless of how good or bad they have been. Our system has been clearly revealed in scripture and that's what gives us a genuine basis for hope and assurance now and in the future. Moralistic therapeutic deism has false optimism. It's all superficial. It, it can't back up the hope that it tries to give, whereas we are optimistic because we have good reason to be optimistic. The, the Christian worldview explains how a person can be saved, like in precise detail, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's very straightforward and clear. And that's the hope that we would strive, again, to try to articulate somebody who's got this sky daddy religion that can't actually do anything for them. We want to share with them the genuine hope of Christianity. And if, and if they are saying God things, what an opportunity to have that conversation. It's a lot easier to have a conversation with them than with an atheist who might just reject you outright. Someone already thinking spiritual thoughts, as whack as they may be, at least gives you an opening to have uh, a fruitful conversation um, with them. So look how early, look how early we got done. Gabe, you're gonna, don't, all right. <laughs> you say that they are typically maybe a little bit overly optimistic about their own performance. Uh, I think that just shows a real lack of uh, being self-critical or just analyzing their own. I mean, you don't have to dig too deep. And I think that's where people like Ray Comfort and his ministry mm -hmm. do a really good job of, hey, let's just throw out some relatively well-accepted standards for just normal human behavior. And time and time again, people consistently fail their own standard that they would espouse to believe. And it just, and that's within a five-minute conversation. So I let them kind of, quote, unquote, condemn themselves by their own standard. Just, you're just kind of showing them, providing an opportunity to show them, and then insert the gospel. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love that. And Ray Comfort does it so well. Uh, the Way of the Master, if anybody hasn't heard of that, Ray Comfort is an apologist. Great Australia, New Zealand. I think he's from New Zealand. I don't want to mischaracterize him. But uh, he'll, he'll do that with people. He'll just start going through the Ten Commandments with them. First, they'll say, I'm a pretty good person. He'll say, Let me, do you want me to do the accent or don't do it? I won't do the accent. He'll say, like, have you ever told a lie before? And they'll have to say, yeah. And uh, he'll say, have you ever stolen anything? And they'll often eventually get to a yes, even if it's stealing time. He's like, well, I don't want to judge you, Bobby, but you just told me you're a lying thief. And starts just going, <laughs> just starts going through the standards. And that's what the law is supposed to do. That's what God's law does. Is what Scripture tells us. It holds a mirror up to you to show you your inadequacy. And then, instead of walking away, you throw them the gospel. Here's the gospel hope um, to bring you to salvation. Ray Comfort's amazing at that. Uh, our three-circle evangelism model is very good at doing that. Uh, there are wonderful ways of, as, as Gabe said, letting people try to see if they even meet their own standard, and they often don't. Um, and we all do the same thing. None of, us, none of us meet the standard, and that's the point. I don't meet the Christian standard either, and that's the point. But Jesus Christ has, and that's the, the good news. And we don't want to share the Bible to share good advice. We want to share good news. So that's the, that's the hope. Any other questions or comments on any of this or any of the previous sessions as well? No? Okay. Uh, again, reminder, we're not meeting next week. We'll be meeting in the Family Center, but we'll be back on the Sunday following and we'll talk about religious pluralism. And then we'll get into, after that, the, the religions. Uh, I appreciate all of you. I think 27 of you did the poll to see which religions we wanted to talk about. So we'll be going through those. Um, I can share the, the order of how many got the most votes if you'd like to, but I probably won't go through the exact order that way. I'll try to go in the ones that kind of make sense with each other. But the, the number one religion that we wanted to hear about for the first many weeks was Islam. And Mormonism was trailing at number two, but Mormonism really made a comeback in the last few weeks to, to top at number one. So the poll's still open if anybody's dissatisfied with that. But, uh, um, but I'll look forward to doing that. Um, so yeah, I'll pray, and we can head on with our Lord's Day. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that um, you aren't a God that is silent, that you aren't uh, distant and remote from us, but you've revealed yourself to us in your word. Uh, you indwell us in your Holy Spirit, and you've sent your son Jesus Christ even to live among us for a period to, to show what the standard was, to live it perfectly, and then to grant us that perfection and take upon himself our sin. Pray that that's good news that we can share with others that um, have a, a, really, a really weak view of your sovereignty and of who you are. Father, I pray that we would be bold enough to share them uh, the truth, that we would share that truth in love, we would show them uh, what your word says and, and what the rescue plan is that you provided in Jesus Christ. Pray all these things in his name. Amen.